Welcome to Talk Design Show, where creatives have conversations. I'm Adrian Ramsey, your host, and having lived a life of design myself, I wanted to share with you the creatives that inspire me and in turn may inspire you. Thank you for listening and please enjoy. My guest on Talk Design today is Sarah Duffy from Stonehill Taylor. Stonehill Taylor is a firm from New York City, a couple of, uh, well, more than a couple, but um, New York natives, um, you know, born and bred New Yorkers that uh, run this firm, Sarah being one of them. And they have a big history in hotels as well as plenty of other things, but hotels is something that really catches my eye. And having stayed in New York and enjoyed the city many, many times, um, and some of the hotels. So um, I've got questions about some of them and the facelifts they've had. So Sarah, welcome to Talk Design. It is a real pleasure to have you here. Um, let's talk design and Sarah Duffy. Okay, thanks for having me. My pleasure, my pleasure. Let's start off with just a little bit at the start there where you're a New York native and um, you were saying Paul Taylor's a New York native as well. So Tell me about this history of growing up in New York, where you went to school. What, what, what was it like? Um, and, and subsequently, what's it like now compared? Okay. So, uh, you know, I was born in the 70s in New York, which is a very different time. Um, and my parents were, my mother was a designer and my dad is a writer. And um, oh, wow. yeah, so I grew up in this very creative household where the New York Times was tantamount to everything, super, super lefties, Democrats, um, and on the Upper West Side. And my mom is a designer and uh, a lover of art, as is my dad. And we spent a lot of our time at museums. Like that was just sort of the norm. We would run over to the Mets. We would go to the Whitney. Um, all of those places were sort of home for me including the Museum of Natural History, which was only blocks from my oh, house. Wow. And yeah. as a young sort of preteen, we would, you could get in for a nickel. So we would go in and play tag and run around. And the best was when the, the guards tried to catch us. And so that was even more fun because, you know, they were old guards and we were young and sprightly so we could run around. And so I have all these great memories of living in New York that, uh, I think, you know, a lot of people don't have, but. Well, definitely uh, deeply immersed in culture in New York because of your family yeah. as well. So that's like, that's like a, you know, one of those things where you drop into a level and you don't really experience the world another way because you see it from those eyes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. That's, that's a good point. Yeah. So, and, and also growing up in New York, you have freedom, right? So you don't have to be driven to your soccer meet or whatever it is. You get on the subway, you figure, you walk, you figure out another way to go and you can go whenever you want. And mm -hmm. that's really spurned a lot of um, interest and in design and architecture for me because I just was walking the city all the time and enjoying it and loving it and loving that energy. I found that was really amazing for me. And I found it astounding when we would go visit people that lived in the country or the suburbs, and I just didn't really get it. <laughs> <laughs> They're probably overwhelmed with the city while you didn't get the country. But I, 
I totally understand. I have the, an absolute love of being out in nature, but I love cities and um, and loving cities. Obviously, New York's one to love, and it's got its own energy and heartbeat and rawness and sophisticatedness. It's got it's got everything, just depending on where you want to put your foot down. You know, like it. One of the things that it's so diverse, it's like a country, well, more than a country, multiple countries within one town. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's one of the most exciting things about it. Even if you compare it to the, something like London, it's just got a whole nother, a whole nother flavor. I used to say to people a lot, well, it's the only European city in America. Like, um, <laughs> <laughs> I totally agree with you. Yeah. And it has this great combination of grittiness and sophistication, which I've always appreciated. Like it's a city of contrasts and oh, that yeah. I think is what's really great about it it can also be what's exhausting about it but um i I really i love that sort of you're walking down this beautiful tree-lined street in brooklyn but then you happen upon an outdoor concert that's happening and so there's this exchange of quiet and loud that i think is really impressive and really i think speaks to a lot of what we do here at at the firm yeah right that that culture of the city's embodied in the culture of the firm Mm-hmm. Well, you guys don't know how to escape it because it is just who you are. Yeah, but I mean, even for me, I, I find particularly at this time of year, I start to need to get out a little bit. You know, mm-hmm. it's I take the jackhammering and the honkings, at, you know, and I find in the fall that's like exciting and sounds great. And then by the late spring, I'm starting to lose a little bit. I need to break. But in general, <laughs> in general, I, I absolutely love it. So tell me, where do you run away to for that break? Where's the, where's the space that you go, I've got to get out of town? Or we're in town, even better still. Like we're in town is those um, spaces where you can just go, oh, just the, the freneticness of the city slows down so that you can catch yeah. your breath. Well, I really love, you know, my husband and I both grew up in Manhattan and and then uh, in 2010, we did something crazy and moved to Brooklyn, which to us was like a completely different experience. And uh-huh. everybody laughed. Felt like we moved to the suburbs. Um, but it's really become our sanctuary because we're very lucky. We live in this townhouse apartment where we have access to the roof. So the roof is ours and wow. very into plants. So I have this beautiful garden up there. And I also have a garden down in front of the of the building and that's really that's my thing like you know my husband laughs like i guess we're going to the plant store again on sunday I'm like, yep <laughs> yep where we're we going <laughs> yep you knew it <laughs> yep. yeah you can get coffee on the way i have a, and there's, a, a oh friend. sorry go ahead i was gonna say i have a friend in brooklyn um russell manley from ludlow blunt i don't know whether you know ludlow blunt their mm-hmm. hair salon oh it's um it's pretty cool and he's very much uh it's an experience because his salon is um, authentic as such, like authentic old school salons used in movies and things like that. But it's worth mm. checking out if you're uh, if you're in and well, you're in the neighborhood. I mean, it's Brooklyn. So okay. I, I know Brooklyn's not tiny, but uh, yeah, he's a really special guy. And um, what they've created there is something else, like amazing. I will check it out. Yeah, I'll send you an email with some uh, details on it. And, um, yeah, he, he's he's very cool, very, very cool. He has a salon there and a salon in um, Tokyo. 
Oh, nice. Yeah. So, uh, and he's very in with the guys at Double RL and stuff like that with the Ralph Lauren brand. So, yeah. Right. It's always good to, like, in your neighborhood, and he's there. That's where he, yeah. He gets away to the to the countryside more often. I, I love that thing where, you know, you, you have your countryside on the roof and you can just get up there and potter around in your plants and reconnect with nature, but you don't actually have to run away from town to do it. Right, exactly. And even um, animals, like there are tons of birds up there. Yeah, wow. That is really amazing. And then there's a, a nest right now that's right below our window. Yeah. So so lovely in the morning because they, they're making lots of noise and they come and sit up on right in front of our window. And it's just lovely, which we didn't have. We never had anything like that in Manhattan. Is it, does that exist in Manhattan? Yeah, I mean, I'm sure people have townhouses and with uh, rooftops. And but yeah. do, they, do you think they get the same amount of bird life and stuff, or do you think Brooklyn's particularly different in that way? I mean, I, it feels like Brooklyn's greener, but maybe I'm just biased. So yeah. I mean, I'm some blocks are you know really lovely. Uh huh. Yeah, it's um. I love both. I love both parts um, of town, you know, like Brooklyn's got its own flavor. It's, uh, mm-hmm. that, that, it's and it's a little grittier. It's a little grittier and it's a little more um, less pretentious. And I think maybe a little more connected to, to its neighborhood, you know, like Manhattan's big and Brooklyn feels small compared, you know, and everybody's there because they've chosen to be there it would seem rather than Manhattan where they, that's where they think they should be. Well, yeah. I mean, we, when we lived on 10th street in the West village for uh-huh. many years. Oh, well, that's and, very connected. Yeah. <laughs> but um, there was a restaurant that we went to probably twice a week. And every time we were like, hi, it's Sarah and Nathaniel in the hopes that the next time they would remember our name, because we desperately wanted like that neighbor, that neighborhood cheers place, you know? Yep. And, and they were like, Oh, hi, have we ever seen you before? And we're like, okay. <laughs> This is it. And so then we moved to Brooklyn and it's, you know, every store person is like, Hey, how are you guys? And it's just like a totally different thing. Like we're, we feel like we're part of a community where we never felt that way in Manhattan. Yeah. Yeah. I get that. I get that. I think that's what Russell enjoys about being over there as well, is that you just feel like you're part of the fabric that makes the place and everybody cares enough to, uh, to, yeah, everybody knows your name, that whole chess thing. Right. <laughs> really classic part of it. So how long ago did you move there? Uh, 2010. Okay, 2010. So oh, you've been there 12 years. Okay. You know there's um, such a strong sense of connection, say, um, in those community neighbourhoods like that, and then you go and work in Manhattan or you go and work in another major city. Um, what does that do to the, your process and to your... Um, your view of the world or your view of their world. Right. I think, I think it's, uh, you know, I'm, I, 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 I always referred to myself as a New York shit. Um, when I was young, because I really felt like the world revolved around New York and that there was really no reason to live anywhere else. And I was <laughs> quite a snob about it. Um, and you know, my life has taken me all over the world, which I feel very fortunate for. And, and I think that that maybe that sort of self-centeredness about New York really allowed me to see other cities in a completely different light and be so shocked and interested um, from, 
from small cities like Columbus, Ohio to London and Beijing to really find it so fascinating to to experience these cities and really understand. I certainly don't claim that I really understand all those cities, but but that um, I, I really to kind Love. of dig, dig under the surface of them yeah. and, and have the comparison. Even if it's, and it could be something really small, like, uh, like I love Sausalito outside of San Francisco mm-hmm. and there's this little dress shop that I love to go to. And it's just a special little moment, but it's, it's certainly not describing all of Sausalito, but it's like those moments that I find are really telling about a place and something that we really try to focus on, on our designs are really celebrating the cities that we're working in. And not always, you know, sometimes the concept doesn't need to come from the city, but we always want to honor where we are. And even if that's in subtle ways. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Finding that story that, um, Mm -hmm. yeah, that creates, I suppose, the connection and allows somebody else to find that connection as well is mm-hmm. um, is really exciting. I think that's probably other than drawing the pictures, it's the most exciting part of design is is um, un- unraveling the story and finding the characters and then I suppose playing with the fantasy of it because um, it's uh, well, it's creating creating moments of discovery. I think is really really cool. You know, so that particularly if people are coming some people go to hotels over and over and over again. And so the idea that we can create such a cool environment that they're still discovering things, even after their fourth visit to the hotel, I uh-huh. think is really important. So tell me this, we'll come back to that. Cause I want to talk about that whole discovery kind of piece of it and hotels in, in particular. Tell me, how did you suddenly end up? Uh, well, not suddenly you kind of grew up in this life of design. How did you end up with that life of design that um, got, form- got formalized? How come you didn't become a writer? How come you didn't become a photographer? How come you didn't become, you know, something else? What was the journey that, that you went, here we are, I'm, I'm, I'm keeping going. Was your mum the winner, in other words? No, I don't okay. really mean that. <laughs> um, I'll, I, it's kind of a long story, but I'll tell you. <laughs> <laughs> so I graduated from college. I went to Ohio Wesleyan University and got a bachelor's of um, art history and honestly I was a little lost like I don't know what to do with my life should I go work for a museum start a gallery it just like none of it seemed to really sit right and um, but going out to Ohio was really great for me because I was exposed to people from all over the country and it was really an eye-opening lovely experience for me And so when I came back to New York, I moved back in with my mom, which was like, oh, God, and um, (laughs) found a job in production, which I know you know all about. And so I was driving cube trucks for art directors and like picking up all their props um, whenever I could. And that was like this amazing experience because, A, I learned how to drive a cube truck. I could get back those things up. I had to learn how to tie a knot so that the props wouldn't fall over the truck. And I had to deal with all the union guys who hated me oh. because I wasn't part of the union. So they were, you know, they'd sometimes they'd come and circle my truck and just stand there menacingly. Like I dealt with a lot of stuff that I had never dealt with before. And it was fantastic. I loved it. It was so much fun and we'd work all night. And then, you know, now that wouldn't be so fabulous, but at the time I just thought 
fantastic. Um, I think there's a lot to be said for when um, you put yourself into an environment like that. And especially one, you know, with the, with the whole audio visual production side of life and it, it operates 24 seven. And and it's certainly, you know, there's a, there's moments that have been captured all the time and it interacts with neighborhoods and nature and everything. Like there's only it, it, for something that you're trying to put so much control into, you're in like mayhem most of the time trying to grab the moments of it and get some control. Yeah, that's yeah. very true. It's so I a, did that. For, oh, sorry. Go ahead. I was going to say it's a fun dynamic industry for that reason, but also it'd be easy to burn out on. Yeah, I think it would be easy to burn out, but I really loved it. Mm. Um, you're right. I just did all this cool, crazy stuff. Like, uh, I was just thinking the other day I, I was working on a Mariah Carey video um, up in Schenectady, New York, in this beautiful, uh, there's like a beautiful concert hall, which who knew that that existed in Schenectady, New York. And um, I was wearing overalls and I was carrying this big, for some reason I was carrying batteries, car batteries. I don't remember why. And of course, one of them like kind of leaked onto my clothes and suddenly I realized that my, my overalls were like starting to rip because, you know, it's like, I just just dissolving in front of you. Yeah. Um, But I, I absolutely loved it. And I loved wearing a walkie go for Sarah. (laughs) (laughs) Need one at the office now. Yeah. Um, so I did that for a while, but it was hard and I did, I didn't burn out, but it wasn't consistent enough. So I just felt like I couldn't make enough money. And then you just didn't know when the next job was coming. And so I was starting to not like that part of it. And so I went and worked for MTV for, uh, Beavis and Butthead, the show. I was the creator, yeah. uh, the creator's assistant. So, uh, that was also great. Again, got thrown into lots of insanity and, but all great stuff surrounded by all these incredible incredibly talented creative people that did think I mean I didn't know anything about animation so I was just completely thrown in and then we were um at the time this is huge sensation so we were on the cover of time newsweek all the big publications and the creator Mike Judge is actually quite shy so he would just kind of say you know Sarah please go deal with this so I was running around with all the press people dealing with, you know, again, just diving into all this cool, exciting stuff um, and loving it. And so I stayed at MTV for, I guess it was like almost seven or, I think it was like seven years. And I moved around. I was first, I was his assistant. Then I was the script coordinator. So I was dealing with all the voiceovers and and then it exploded to these, the MTV exploded into, into consumer products, which they had never done before. And they were doing this massive reach all over the world. And the problem is that people would license, let's say the MTV logo or Be- Beavis and Butthead's likeness, and then they do their own version. And so I- yeah, Their own version being the key, yeah. key phrase there. Exactly. <laughs> I know exactly fair. what you're talking about. Yeah. So I became the liaison between the creatives and the, the business people because they, they couldn't seem to really talk to each other very well. And so I was the in-between and would help kind of uh, really. Well. Yeah. And I love that too. That was great. 
and then kind of moved up the ranks there. But then, oh, and then we um, opened an MTV store. So I was part of hiring the architect and then being on site with them and reviewing their drawings. And that's when I really was like, hmm, this is interesting. Meanwhile, my mom is a designer for high-end residential work. Mm -hmm. And she was always doing such amazing work, but always very stressed out and nervous and dealing with crazy clients calling her on Sunday morning and yelling about the sconces in their baby's room. So I was very resistant to any of that. Um, and she kept saying, Sarah, I think, I think maybe you want to do this. I was like, no, I do not want to. That is not a good idea for me. And of course she was absolutely right. And well, that so, it wasn't that, that, that it was a good idea for you. And it uh, was, and so I was working on that MTV store and, and just had this real aha moment, like, oh my God, she's right. I love this. Um, but, and, you know, in my defense, it was a completely different way of looking at interior design than what I was used to. Um, so uh, anyway, so I said to my mom, I think I'm, I, I started taking classes. I went, I took like a class on learning how to, to draw blueprints and another mm -hmm. one to something else. And, so I went to her and I was like, I think I'm actually kind of like this. And she said, you should talk to this woman. She used to work for me. And now she works for this big architecture firm that does hotels, which was the Rockwell group. And I was like, okay. And so I talked to her and I said, you know, can I just go get a job with one of these guys? And she's like, no, no, Sarah, no one's going to hire you unless you go back to school. Like, oh my God, I can't go back You're to like, school. I can't That's go back to school. I've I had a life already. Yeah, exactly. I'm done. At this point, I was 29. I was like, no, forget it. And then um, I started asking around and everyone's like, yeah, you can't come here unless you. <laughs> unless you've you been to school. <laughs> Damn. Later. Mom was mom was right. Mom was right. And so um, I went back to school to FIT and got my interior design degree and was an intern at Rockwell through that woman, which was very generous of them. And, and then the rest is history. They hired me after I graduated and that was, oh my gosh, that was, that was in 2002. So that was a long time ago. Yeah. Wow. Oh, not so long. 20 years. Yeah. 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 It's um, a lot's happened in that 20 years. That's for sure. Like yeah. If, that's if, if you look at the journey. Yeah. Yeah. An awful lot's happened. An awful lot's happened in New York City in that twenty years as well. A lot, yeah. So that love of um, hotels, or that love of um, you know the interior design side of it, which is, I, I always think that you know the whether it's say it's a, a residential, it's only a, a shell or a, a building until it's actually got the um, interior, which turns it into a home or into a, an experience. Um, and I think it's easy to connect with the, that you know, you've got the environment outside of a building and then you've got the environment inside and it's easy to connect with something that's amazing inside the surprise, the, the hidden stories, the hidden, the pieces that peel back for you, um, as, as you discover something and you were saying earlier about you know, being in hotels and um, a lot of people just keep going to the same hotel over and over and over. And I know I did that for quite a few years, traveling in and out of New York and 
Um, Where would you stay? At the Algonquin, and which I know is a <laughs> hotel you've done. So yeah, um, and you know it was position, it was reasonably priced, and it had this history, this writer's history, and right. um, the cats, the cats, the cats. Um, and so for that reason, it just became easy because I knew it would be there. And, you know, and for a while there, I did the Power Mount, which is another one you guys have done. And I just, um, I remember going and meeting somebody there and the, um, I, I walk into the hotel foyer there and Philip Stark had done it originally, I believe. And, yeah. um, I walk in and lounging on the couches in that main foyer piece was the band Oasis. Oh my and, God. Okay. Yeah, exactly. And they're just like lounging around. And I was meeting somebody there and I'm like, yeah, that's uh, Liam Gallagher. It's like, um, and not starstruck or anything with the, with that part of it, but it was just like, well, maybe this place is really cool. So, yeah, you know, right. my next trip I booked there and then, you know, like I booked <laughs> it for a few years and, um, I'd sort of be there twice a year. So the Algonquin kind of got moved on for that. But just, um, and then, you know, various other hotels, but those are the two that I would return to. Right, right, right. Yeah, and, and not that they were amazingly special hotels. They were just different. And something I love in a city like um, New York is, is that, and back when I was doing that was, probably 30 something years ago um it was and I go hotels have developed an awful lot since then but in a town like New York or you know like maybe San Francisco or um you know different different types of towns there's just historic uh pieces that keep rolling and they get reinvented and reinvented and reinvented but there's always a fabric of their story backed into it somewhere mm -hmm. and then you get, you know, new towns um, that just have chains and the chains yeah. are just accommodation. doesn't mean they're good or bad, but they're just chains and they're just accommodation and they don't necessarily tell, they tell the same story in every town they're in. Um, you know, mm -hmm. they're the McDonald's. So you know that you can get the burger this way. It doesn't matter whether it's right. good or bad. You just know that it's regular and it's consistent. So it's safe. Um, right. And then, you know, when you look at some a city like you were saying with New York, then you've got to have your own piece of it uh, when you do something. So I'd love you to talk about that, about those sort of the personalities and finding the piece of it um, would be really, really cool. Okay. You mean when, when we're working on a hotel? Yeah. Well, you've done from, you know, like, hotels like the plaza to the algonquin then those are two extremely different ends of the market and um different cl client base like you know like the and yeah i don't know tell us about it tell us about it because um i have this fantasy always that it would be great to design a boutique hotel and then i think it's just an overwhelming task as well unless it was you know five rooms that would be <laughs> boutique enough I'm sure the economic model doesn't run very well with five rooms. <laughs> um, well, you know, I was just thinking about this the other day that um, designing is really hard. Like it's, it's really daunting to show up at that, that hotel 
and know that they want to completely redo it. And, you know, you have, I've had numerous experiences, very different ones. I've walked in and been like, oh yeah, this needs, this could be so much better. And, but that in itself is terrifying because it's so bad. You can't imagine how you could make it any better, which is ridiculous. Um, like I had that experience in, in Minnesota and in Minneapolis, I went into a, what's now we, it, we turned it into a higher regency and it was so ugly and so depressing. It's like, that's it. I don't know. I, I can't do this. I don't know how we're going to make this any better. Like I kind of had like a mini fit. A little I mini, come. mini breakdown <laughs> on the moment. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Nervous breakdown, but then everything was okay. Uh, can we bulldoze it? <laughs> yeah, exactly. uh, I don't know how to do this. Um, and then of course it's, great and is i actually was randomly in minneapolis recently uh in the last few months and it's still looking great and looks timeless and we did a great job so um there's that experience and then there's the experience of you walking in and you actually think it looks pretty good the way it is um but they want to completely rethink it and so i find that daunting too it's like okay well this already looks great like how are we gonna <laughs> what what it's in- like it's like getting dressed and putting on stuff and and, and, and then going, God, I wore this recently, like the same kind of outfit. And then you go, how do I make it better? Oh, no, yeah. I don't have anything to make it better. Um, and then having to dig, you know. Right. Like, yeah. And then the same thing is, you know, you walk into a guest room and most guest rooms have a bed and a bathroom and a chair and a TV and a place to put your clothes. So that's also daunting. I go, okay, how are we going to make this one different from all the other ones we've designed and that have been designed over the millennia? Um, Especially so- also when you get kind of a formula of size, like um, hotel rooms are built on that, you know, sort of a formula of size because it's the you know, amount of occupancy you can create and all the rest. Right. So it, that, that would be daunting to just sort of go, yeah, well, this is the same size, same layout. The doors on the left, the bathrooms on the right, whatever it is exactly. that that I've been in a thousand times. Okay, make it all new, Sarah. Yeah. Your job, your job is that I want something that nobody's ever seen before, and I want exactly. everybody to talk about it. This thing's got to blow up on social media, otherwise we won't feel like you've got through the brief properly. <laughs> that's exactly that's what exactly every single client says to us, and we say, "Oh, no problem," and then you know, go home and have <laughs> yeah. a heart. Go, um, go home and sit under a tree on your rooftop and go oh shit <laughs> here, exactly. here we go I love that <laughs> uh, but the way that we you know once we calm down is we are very narrative focused so we always have a strong story behind all of our work and that can be very conceptual where we completely make something up it can be something very subtle where it's not hitting you over the head and it can be also you know very obvious in other ways. Um, so, so we find that that story like really helps us throughout the whole process. And it's something that we end up really leaning on. So mm-hmm. if you come up with this really strong layered, great story about your design, then later when you're six months in and you're stressing about whatever it is, you can always say, okay, wait a minute, let's go back to the concept. Let's revisit. Let's take a breath. Why, we, why are we here? Yeah. Exactly. And I think it also helps to, I think it really helps us. And I'm sure many other, I know many other designers use the same technique, but 
it helps the design to stay very consistent throughout the whole thing. So that when you walk in to the lobby, you know, that whole vibe is consistent. Mm -hmm. It's the underpinning of the, of the culture and the story and the values that just underpinned the whole way. Right. And, And that makes the difference. I think to people, they want to be, they want to be engaged, but they don't necessarily want to be surprised. You know, they want, they want maybe an initial surprise, but, then they want to be constantly engaged and and discover and ideally discover. I think this happens with clothing as well. You want to discover things that um, are personal to you and how you mm-hmm. discovered them or when you discovered them. And um, it's a. I remember working with a, a company out of uh, France, and we were. I was designing clothing and when I was talking to one of the guys, he said, yeah, like it was something that I just went, oh, that's so obvious. You just can't do that. And um, I actually kind of said that to him and he said, no, no, no. I, I think you should put it under the pocket lapel. And I'm like, what? And he's like, you should put it under the pocket lapel. And um, he said, haven't you ever found something, you know, sort of six months after you've owned it? And then gone, oh, I never even knew that was there. And um, those guys who keep coming back to places or open an extra door or look inside something. I remember owning a, a, um, like a floppy hat, like just a floppy beach type hat. And uh, I was more attached to the fact that it said it was Quicksilver and it said head trip um, as the, on, on the bra- on the logo so it was quicksilver head trip I was more fa- attached to that than i was the hat because right. no- nobody saw that except for the people who owned those hats you know and and lucky jeans have always done the thing on the on the fly lucky you you know I so- uh, yeah i and, love that and finding those things in a space as opposed to something that's personally on you is i think it, it makes the magic. We used to have a group of friends. I lived in Auckland. I'm a Kiwi originally. I live in Australia now. I lived in Auckland. And we had a group of friends that used to drink this wine that was like El Toro or something like that. And it was a Spanish wine that had a little black plastic bull. Oh, yeah. That, I love you, that. You know, yeah, you know the wine. Yeah. So it's just a cheap ass, like anybody could drink it, wine. And... Um, Anyway, we used to have this competition that you would go to different restaurants. And so this is like geocaching before, before there was ever geocaching. And you would have a bottle of this wine and you would take the bull and you would put the bull somewhere and you had to find, so you tell your friends, oh, we were at wherever on Tuesday or you know Friday night, we were at whatever. Um, oh, and we left the bull. And so, so, and it was this little cult thing, but they're like friends would go to that restaurant again and hunt for the bull while they're meant to be sitting there having dinner. Um, Right. Sometimes you'd leave without putting the bull there and say, we hit the bull, you know. (laughs) That's when I lived in Spain for a year and we drank that wine all the time. All the time. Yeah. (laughs) But that, that thing of um, discovery, uh, I think, is something really, really special. And weaving it into the fabric of something is just amazing. One of my questions with hotels, though, is, is 
So each hotel has a customer demographic. So, I mean, the, these guys know their numbers, know who they're serving, um, know how to serve them. How do you, how do you deal with that? In, and, and does this happen? This would be the other question with that. Does a hotel end up with an aging customer demographic? So like a car brand. A car brand, you know, usually starts out small and grows and grows and grows in size. When I say the brand, I mean the model grows and grows right. and grows in size because, you know, it starts out as a, this can be a really sound really sexist, but it starts out as a little runaround that, you know, you buy for your daughter or your daughter buys and she, that's the first car. And then she ends up getting almost to people mover size because she's got kids. Right. Um, and you grow the brand or you grow that piece of the brand, that model, along with, with uh, a very yeah with a very deliberate journey that you're trying to create for somebody and with a hotel you know you might go well this look fit out is going to be for the next i don't know how long they last say 10 years say 15 years if this is going to be the fit out length then who's our customer now and how, are we just trying to keep them are we trying to engage somebody new and do we have to grow them up um, because we're probably going to grow up our pricing as we go. So what, what happens there? How does that whole thing unravel or, I don't know, get glued together, whichever? <laughs> well, I mean, it's a good question. I, I mean, when we're designing a hotel, we generally have a demographic in mind. Um, however, I feel like that's really shifting quickly. You know, it used to be that you would never think of someone over 50 and a moxie, mm-hmm. but... A lot of people are, you know, it's a good price. They want to come to New York or whichever city for a weekend. Like why I don't want to be in my room the whole time. So the small room is fine. And then the public space is really engaging and terrific. So I think those, those, those mentalities of like, who is our specific market is really shifting. And also they're really finding that, um, they uh, rely on the business traveler, right? Particularly during the week, particularly Tuesday sure. through. And then it switches to leisure on the weekends. And those are very often very different groups of people. Um, and so it's hard to design to both those groups. And so we, you know, we generally, I mean, we always know who our, who our client is going after, of course, but yeah, of course. we really try and design in a timeless manner so that we're not uh, hopefully it's not aging out and then it's just growing and, you know, kind of absorbing new, new um, clients, I guess, new people that are staying there. But, you know, we did the Camby in Phoenix, which was originally a Ritz Carlton mm-hmm. and it was like Ritz Carlton on steroids with, you know, they had the, the lunch, the, the tea with the ladies and the, they would come with their big hats. I mean, it was like a whole thing that I had, could not understand. It's like, I don't get what's happening here. Um, and it was so stodgy. And uh, I mean, I hated it. I was like, this is not a hotel that I would ever want to stay in. But it also turned out that many basketball players stayed there because it was right next to the stadium. So you'd have like, these amazingly tall, gorgeous, <laughs> running around. Seven like, foot tall, seven foot tall basketball players and then women in large hats eating scones. Exactly. <laughs> With like, you know, the tiered thing and the pot of tea. Like it's like very, <laughs> um, 
Um, and so when we came in, we completely changed it. And not only did we, um, I mean, we turned it into a Marriott autograph. So it became this like, you know, Marriott autograph is each one is supposed to be one of a kind. Like everyone's uh-huh. supposed to feel like at a hotel, but very locally based. So it was, our concept was very much based in Arizona and um, sort of the surrounding, uh, you know, flora and fauna and the amazing mountains, et cetera. Um, and, but it's very sort of avant-garde. It's like, we really pushed the envelope in terms of artwork and we designed a lot of the artwork ourselves. And so it's kind of funky. We took some of their original antiques and actually dipped them in automotive paint. Like we did all these fun things. Um, but of course, in the back of my mind, I'm like, oh my God, well, I, those stodgy ladies, you know, they're certainly not coming for tea anymore, but I hope that they still like it. Like, I, you know, you've, dis- I was, you've certainly displaced them. Yeah. And I don't know that we ever really got them to love it, but one of my favorite moments is, uh, well, I had two favorite moments. One was Patrick Ewing was sitting in one of the chairs that were a, like a settee that we designed and, you know, he's just dwarfing it. I mean, the guy yeah. is like nine million feet tall and but he was comfortable he was hanging out he was on his phone just sitting there and looked comfortable and then my other favorite uh thing was lebron james was there and i heard him say this place is dope yeah and right that made you like, taller you stood up a little straighter <laughs> yeah so that you know it's it's hard to figure out and i'm sure we of course lost some of the stodgy old ladies, but I like to think that we gained a lot on the other side yeah. of both older people and younger people who would enjoy the hotel. And it's because it's very comfortable, but it's also very art focused. It's fair. It, there's lots to discover constantly. Um, so I, I hope that that appealed to both of them. I, 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 yeah, I totally get that. And that experience, mm-hmm. like take people like them where they, to them, it's a business hotel almost because. Right. They're traveling, they're, they're doing that thing. And what you do is, is you get to add a dimension to their life um, that adds uh, an understanding, you know, like LeBron saying, this place is dope, you know, like he's looking around and taking in the environment and he's going, huh, I like this stuff, like this is cool. And probably carries some of that stuff back in the sense of, his own home or his own places or, Hey, you know, I like that. That was a good feeling. Like you left him with something more than he came with um, from your environment, which I think as long as it's positive, it's a really, that's a really powerful thing to be able to do. Yeah. Hmm. And, and to create a memory, right? Like that they'll remember the place because I imagine. Yeah. A year. It's nice to think that. Yeah. That sort of. I like that idea of using autographs as, um, you know, like because they're all unique to each area. And that that's one of my things that I look at this, uh, the marketplace that Airbnb is. And I often will say to clients like, you know, an Airbnb is not about accommodation as much as it's about experience. Um, you're, you're in the marketplace competing and, and this would be like any major city, whether it be Airbnb or whether it be a, um, a, a hotel, you're A, competing on price of some kind. There's some kind of budget thing that you've got to compete on. And then you've got to actually try and get that person to make the decision, A, that, that you're within their price bracket or close enough to it, 
and B, that it's going to be exciting to come and be there. It's, it's going to be somewhere worth being. And I think the thing that Airbnb did to the marketplace is it showed people that they could have a different experience um, very quickly and very easily. And the ones mm-hmm. who succeed the most seem to be the ones who offer an experience, you know, like they, they cause an experience, um, not just the neighborhood and, you know, not just the bed. And that's the same in a hotel. Um, yeah, you go to a hotel and if it leaves you with an experience, you go, oh, that was cool. That, mm-hmm. that, was, that was really good. You know, I recently was just in the, in the US uh, a couple of months ago and um, I was in Wyoming and I was also down in Zion National Park. And oh, dri- cool. Yeah, driving into Zion at, um, oh, goodness, I don't know, like 4.30 or something in the afternoon and starting to search for accommodation, yeah, like maybe two hours before that. <laughs> and uh, as you do, you know, like we were on the road, we, we were driving, so it wasn't too bad. And But anyway, the thing was, is we were like, oh, wow, that's booked out, that's booked out, that's booked out. And we found like a motel, but what would it, I can't even think what it was called, maybe the Zion Motel or something, right in town. And it had the best, it was original <laughs> had the best 70s decor you've you've been in in many years you know the carpet wasn't shag pile but there was brown velour and there was gold and you know like there was um yeah just yeah yeah and and it was well priced but better than that we could walk to absolutely everything and it was Mm -hmm. simple um and you know the price wasn't the key thing. Availability was our key thing. But we came away going, that was so cool because we wouldn't have chosen it normally. Right, right. Yeah. No, I great story. I think that's, and I think that's what Airbnb offers you, right? I mean, I mean, look, I often choose Airbnb over staying at a hotel for price reasons. I'm traveling with my kids. We, mm-hmm. we need two hotels. It's like, even, even if you're lucky enough to find a place for $200 a night, that really adds up, you know? Oh, yeah. Um, we love Airbnb and have had some really amazing experiences and internationally too. I mean, we stayed in this, uh, apartment in Rome that was just gorgeous, like huge ceilings and just over the top fabulous. And I mean, that was a much cooler experience than staying in a hotel. Yeah, exactly. Well, it, it, it fights the two, doesn't it? Like, so you go, Oh, I could get that there and I could get that there. The upside of an Airbnb worked very hard on this, but the upside of a hotel is is that usually you can establish the brand values fairly quickly. Um, in an Airbnb, the brand values might be all over the show. Um, right. You know, you're going to deal with an individual or individuals um, that yeah, it could be a good experience or could be a poor experience. Like who knows? Uh, yeah, that's the that's the challenge. We're in a hotel. There's there's somebody to complain to or there's somebody to ask for help or there's somebody like that that's um easy and i i think of that thing of you know creating hotels that have that much experience in them you know that um they give you that you know like i said before i've got this little fantasy about a boutique hotel because i'd love to offer the um some sort of like what would feel like a very personal experience and then you go to you know 
rooms where it's a lot bigger and all the rest. And I love going to them because, especially if they're well-designed, because, yeah, they leave a piece of you, you know, they leave, the, you, well, you get a piece of them that you take with you and the experience that you had just from the environment that's put around you. Mm-hmm. And, and it's often like you were saying with the Moxie, you know, like so the rooms aren't huge, but the, the public spaces are really well-developed. And tell me about that in the psyche of hotels, some of them big rooms maybe, and, uh, you know, almost like you're in your suite versus uh, the public areas. Well, I mean, I, I think this is actually really interesting because prior to the pandemic, uh, you know, micro hotels were like all the rage. So pods, moxies, uh, motto for Hilton. Um, and that's their whole concept is the room is tiny. It's well appointed and nice, but they don't really want you hanging out there. They want you downstairs spending money at the bar and the restaurant or whatever amenities they have. Often they Using have other- the public space. Yeah. And so the public spaces is where they really spend their design dollars and really go all out and make something really fabulous, including roof decks and all sorts of stuff. Um, and it works, right? People like it. And as I was saying before, it's particularly if you're com- coming to a city to, to be a tourist, it's great, right? You're not going to sit in your room all day anyway. You're going to be one out. But then the pandemic hit and, you know, people didn't really want to be in public spaces. I mean, that's changing quickly, but yeah. Um, suddenly, you know, how do you, how do you create a, a space that's accommodating to people that, you know, maybe don't necessarily want to be sitting right next to their neighbor, but also is still this like amazing public space. And the thing that's happened for us is we really have to design flexible spaces. So we have to, they have to be able to sort of adjust in that regard. Um, and that, and that can mean, you know, being able to pull tables apart. It can mean being able to just place people appropriately so that they're not on top of each other. The, the thing that the pandemic did with its removal of um, connection uh, because of the public space thing and people's craving connection, but also craving security and safety um, yeah. is a really big conundrum. You know, this thing has to kind of fight each other um, and getting it right, like getting enough of it. Because I've got a friend who's a, you know, he he designs restaurants mainly. Um, And, you know, he talks about you've just got to be able to just hear the people next door, but not hear their conversation. Um, You've got to be able to see their food arrive so that you can be delighted by it, just like you're delighted by yours. You know, you've got to be in your own pool of light as opposed to in an overall pool of light. Um, And how important the theatre of the restaurant is based around your experience. You know, the the decor experience, you're going to have three, really. The food, the um, environment, and the service. Those are going to be the three major experiences you're going to take away. And how important each one of them is, but he's the one doing the environment. Um, Right. And and. Giving people that sense of being with people, but but alone as well, you know, intimate, more intimate, not that they have to be with people. Right. I mean, but that's very true with hotels as well, right? I mean, we can 100%. design, but if it's not operated properly and well, it doesn't yeah. really matter. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think to sort of get back to the question, I mean, I think then, 
you know, I think people started to sort of question the tiny room, but honestly, like the dollars don't work out. So people are sticking in terms of developers are sticking to this small room type and it's, it's a very profitable equation. And I think as the pandemic, you know, uh, who knows what it, what it's really going to do, but it's, it seems like people are relaxing their, their worries about sitting next to somebody uh, in a restaurant. So Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. uh, I think, you know, we, we've really sort of gone the gamut of going from these teeny, teeny rooms, which I'm sure will always continue in New York. And then also, you know, working outside of the city and just having, I'm doing a job in Pasadena and the rooms are huge. Yeah. Right. It's it's so funny. I mean, we all walk in the developers from New York and we just walked in and started laughing. Like, what is all this space for? What do they need this for? (laughs) (laughs) Well, Hey, when you design a house, you have the same thing. You go, I have people who say, Oh, I need a lounge suite in my bedroom. And, um, so they want like, you know, basically a sofa and chairs and, um, they want like, and I'm like, what are you doing here? Like, (laughs) tell me how this goes down. Like, you know, do you just throw your clothes on it or do you actually get to sit in it? Do you actually use it that way? You know, and, and the budget's always chopped up between which space will be which. Um, Right. And yeah, you get it though. Like I, I totally understand it as well from some points of view, you know, like sometimes my wife and I will retreat to our bedroom when the kids are doing stuff and, um, you know, We'll, we'll sit on the bed watching a movie on a laptop or something. Um, and not, yeah, we, I, <laughs> yeah, we all do it, don't we? We all, yeah. we all have this dynamic in our life that things have to be flexible like that. Yeah. Something that I think that, um, you know, with the pandemic, something that uh, people certainly uh, became very aware of their own space. And um, I think that's had a big, chunk of shift in people's thinking and they're still very aware of their own space but they crave connect we all crave connection of some kind um so getting that connection back and strengthen that connection is really important to our own mental health yeah agreed agreed and our hotel has a lot to offer in that way so tell me um because um the power mountain the algonquin um uh, both hotels that I've known, I haven't been there in, goodness, I haven't been to New York in probably about seven years, I think, maybe about seven no. or eight years. I don't know. It flies so fast, especially when you were stopped from traveling for nearly three. So, right. um, yeah, it Lip. would be, be at least that, maybe maybe even eight years. Um, and at, when I was in New York last, I stayed in, I, sta- I actually stayed in an Airbnb. And it was right when those Airbnbs, so it might be a little bit less time than that. Yeah. Last time I was in New York, I stayed in Airbnb and we weren't allowed to. You know, the Airbnb wasn't allowed. There was some guy running something that we managed to stay right in Manhattan. Um, and, uh, you know, we did all the things like helicoptered around the, over this, down, you know, all around the bays and stuff like that. It was fantastic. Yeah. Hmm. But um, tell me with that, um, those two hotels in particular, how they've changed, what's happened, um, and, and how you approached it, especially maybe maybe the, the Paramount because it was Philippe Stark's um, original thing. And what did you guys do from there? 
So uh, just in full transparency, we were the architects on the uh, uh-huh. Paramount, but interior design, my good friends did the interior design. Um, so I don't know if that changes it, but well, uh, not at all. I mean, I think what's really, um, I, I think the Paramount, the, the way it was designed is like truly amazing and that it really started to speak to a big open space, but creating smaller intimate sections within it mm-hmm. um, so it has now it has this like huge ginormous double-sided sofa so you can be lounging there or it's got four chairs that are facing each other with magazine racks between it so you could be sitting there you could be sitting um in front of the fireplace like there's lots of interesting things that, and of course we were part of all that but um for me, it was like really inspirational in terms of design and how to sort of create spaces within spaces. Uh-huh. And then um, the Algonquin, you know, I was, I've been going to the Algonquin since I was a kid. My parents used to take me there. And Your I dad there. being a writer would make sense. Right, exactly. Um, so it was always had a place in my heart. And my mom, who still lives in New York, goes there all the time with her buddies. Like that's their, their hang. Uh, so, but again, it was like really daunting, right? I mean, it's this place that I've cared about forever and, oh my God, what are we going to do? And we came up with this idea of completely, you know, keeping all those amazing bones and all the history, but completely Mm -hmm. changing. So now that it's like an off white now where before it used to be very dark as I'm sure. Yeah. Um, so, uh, that was like very daunting like is that the right choice is this one thing that we should be doing um you know i mean design as i said is very hard and you have to you have to have conviction conviction and you have to really believe in what you're doing um and and that sometimes wavers you know quite honestly like sometimes you're like oh boy i don't know but in general <laughs> that's what you have to do and you know now mm-hmm. i'm i i love it i think what we did is great um so I'm, I'm enthralled that we were a part of that project. And it really just had so many amazing moments. Like one of my favorite moments was um, we were there during construction. This all happened during COVID too, which was intense because we'd have to, you know, one of the designers that worked for me would ride his scooter over the Queensboro bridge. And I would um, walk most of the way from Brooklyn because, you know, at the yeah. time you were to be on public transportation and we would do that every week and meet there and so one day we walked in and there was this beautiful half moon glass ginormous thing sitting on the floor and it's like oh my god what is that and the contractor said oh that's behind that was that's that was behind the bar because we moved the bar to a new location and he said where you've placed the bar we had to demo this so i'm going to take it home i was like no 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 you're not going to take it home we're going to we're going to find another place for it in the hotel. It belongs here, not behind not the bar. Not in your head. Yeah. 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 No, thank you. Um, and so that's what we did. And we found another place that's right above reception um, to highlight this wonderful thing. And we put lighting behind it. And, and the other thing that we really, that I'm really proud of at that hotel is it, it didn't really work very well initially. Um, in terms of you walked in and it had this, I don't know if you recall, it has that weird, had that long reception desk mm-hmm. and you get there and it was on the way to the elevator. And then if you want to go to the restaurant, like it's, it just didn't work. 
So we completely rethought it. And so now reception is off to the right when you first walk in. So allowing people to kind of step out of circulation, get yep. off the beaten path, they can have a moment with the receptionist. And then we also created a small little area behind it where people can sit and wait so that that sort of experience gets put to the side, not, not, you know, not literally, like it's not, it's still a great experience. And then the rest of it happens much more seamlessly. And then we created a little corridor to the elevators so that there is this feeling of separation from the public to private. Exactly. Um, and I think it, it's very successful. And then following off of that sort of paramount idea, we've created these really beautiful seating moments within the larger area and also completely moved the bar. So originally, like back, back in the day, there was a bar sort of next to the front door to the right of it, which yeah. you never saw, like in the, you know, when it was first built and it was this beautiful uh, sort of shimmering silver backdrop and so we found these amazing photographs and then um, emulated that but brought the bar into that big main room so again like you walk in you see reception immediately and then you focus on this bar that's bringing you into the space so Um, almost like going into one of those parlor bars you know like yeah you arrive and there's there's a a space just to the side that you yeah you go there and get your drink you know it's like yeah and and relax in the lounge with your drink exactly Mm. and then you know the the um, round table is obviously so important to that hotel so uh where dorothy parker hung out etc so we created our own sort of timeless modern version of the round table and put that sort of further in the back so that one could see it, but then also creating the ability to bifurcate the, the lobby so that one could sell that space. So it's really also working with the client to figure out how can we make this hotel more profitable for you while keeping it beautiful and, and again, flexible, right? So you can close these big, beautiful curtains if you'd like and have two separate spaces, or you can keep them open. You know, there's, it's just like gives them diversity in terms of how they're affecting their space and selling their space. Yeah, that's so cool. That's really, it's a great insight into, you know, A, the economics of it, but B, the, it was a, it was a very awkward lobby front area. Super Um, awkward. And, and, you know, it probably was reflected in its price to some degree um, because it didn't flow that easily. And, but you knew you were in a piece of history. So that was probably the caveat you know well i'm in a piece of history it doesn't mean it had to be perfect by any means um but then to be able to do that and then to break more economics out of the area as well um obviously is that's why it's a hotel it's a business yeah it's it's businesses first and then it's um how does it go about that business um you you were telling me also about doing um an immersive deep dive in nashville and um, yeah. maybe as a, I've got one more question after this, but tell us about when you go and do that sort of immersive deep dive. And also, you know, as I said, Nashville, it's what you leave out, not what you put in, because there is so much content. Um, but everybody's probably trying to, this is going to sound wrong, play the same tune. Everybody's trying to play out that same um, music history and, uh, you know, the, the country music history of the place. So tell me about that, um, where you stayed yourselves when you did your deep dive and yeah, 
okay. the story of Nashville. Nashville. So we stayed at a hotel called the Hutton, which is still there, which is a perfectly nice hotel, but um, it was really one of the nicest hotels at the time. And this was, gosh, this must've been six or seven years ago. And Nashville's completely changed since then. Mm -hmm. Um, And um, we, we literally, we created an, an itinerary. We made appointments with people we did anything and everything we could. So we literally went to as many restaurants as we could possibly swing, ran into as many bars as we could, saw all the hotels in town. We went out and got a plantation tour in Bellevue, which is right outside of the city. Uh, we went to this famous biscuit place that was an hour outside of the city that everybody goes to. Uh, we met with a tourism official who had lots to tell us about the city and what was happening and took him to lunch, which was very interesting and, op- and eye-opening. And w- we went to museums. I mean, we did anything we could for, th- for three days and it was exhausting. Like we hired a car, which is like, we would run out like, okay, you let's run into this hotel. You know, you just don't have enough time to see it all. And kind of fell in love with the city. I mean, and it also had all this like really interesting stuff happening with food and beverage, like really wonderful restaurants, things that people that were really sort of pushing the envelope in terms of new concepts. And then of course there was like, you know, uh, I'm forgetting that I'm forgetting it because we didn't focus on it, but the street where all the music is like, we of yeah, yeah. We down the street where all the recording studios are. And yeah. I, yeah. Yeah. Last time I was in Nashville, I actually did a tour because I went, there's so much here. I, I've, I've missed too many little hidden things. So just did a, some sort of, I can't even remember, looked, looked up a tour and went on a tour. Right. Um, so, yeah, I mean, we, we fell in love with it and really took all that back and then came up with a concept. The other thing is we did tons of research. So the city is really steep obviously in in history of music but it is really steeped in the history of manufacturing yeah so because it sits on the mississippi river not the mississippi river the um tennessee it's not the mississippi though it's uh, it'll come to talking but it sits on this major river that um all the steamboats would come down and bring their all their wares to all the cities that that sat on that uh river and it became a major uh, port, really, in a lot of ways. And then the invention of the uh, railroad, really, because the railroad would then run along the river, completely, you know, made the steamships obsolete. And so we studied all of that. And so our concept was really based on the history of Tennessee and Nashville and not on music, because the music thing had been done and done and done and done and done. And we really felt like we had to find another route. Another story. Yeah. Yeah. Story. And it also has uh, amazing history of, um, you know, your cast iron skillet. Uh There's a company called Lodge and they're based in Nashville. And they're one of the biggest producers of cast iron skillets and have been for, you know, over a century. So, uh, and then there's these amazing leather makers. And so we took all of that and really came up, came up with a sort of like very industrial chic concept and also based it on the um, flora and fauna, like the magnolia trees were so amazing. And the, the perfume from them was so spectacular. 
and the um, the insect of Tennessee is a firefly. So we uh-huh. love that. We layered that in, and then also just the sense of Southern hospitality. Like we were so. I had never spent any time in Tennessee and I was really kind of blown away by the true meaning of that and how everywhere we went, we were welcomed and mm-hmm. um, made ball and we really loved it. So that's, that's what we did. And, you know, I think we came up with a really great concept and it shows in the design that was for the JW Nashville and uh-huh. it's a really beautiful hotel and it's a convention hotel. So we were concerned. We didn't want it to feel like a convention hotel, which I think we succeeded in it. It again has these sort of intimate seating areas spaced throughout the lobby. And it has these terrific, almost triple height ceilings. And we created these really wonderful metal screens that help sort of divide the space and a ginormous fireplace with, and we use tons of natural stone. So it's just a very warm, inviting space. But um, I think, you know, there is a consistency throughout the space that like kind of industrial chic concept. Uh And when you, and there's, it's also about how does it function, right? So you first walk into this oval space, you can go to the left to the convention center or the right to the hotel. Okay. So that you're overriding both those things. Uh-huh. But it's this really artful, beautiful moment where we did a mirrored ceiling and then we hung over 200 of these little gorgeous pendants that are just kind of glimmering like are your fireflies. fireflies. Yeah. yeah. I love that. I love that. That's a beautiful way of um, telling people the story of how you created something, but also of, um, you know, how, how the fireflies get worked into the project how how it actually happens and you know mirroring ceiling so that it just double reflects it constantly um yeah it's like it's the method that that you bring those things in with um did you happen to go to the urban cowboy while you were there um in nashville oh yeah (laughs) you've got one in brooklyn as well yeah we do yeah we do yeah Yeah, i did I hated the urban cowboy the one that's it's in a house yeah yeah. Yeah. Uh, um, I, stayed in some very strange rooms in that hotel. <laughs> <laughs> I just wondered whether it got any influence. Um, I think it's a fantastic, you know, little hotel and that whole group of hotels that he does is fantastic. Like, yeah, really interesting and boutique and stuff. And yeah. I haven't checked out the one in Brooklyn yet. I did notice that, that there's one here. He's done one. Uh, there's the Deer Lodge in as well now as well. There's, yeah, different ones that they're doing. But um, it, it's really interesting because, again, they push the interiors to the extreme, always right. to the extreme, you know. Um, it'd be very hard to do it on a large commercial basis. Um, yeah. Yeah, because it's all artisan. But on the commercial side of it, there's still the cues and the stories and the, the way it comes together. Right. Um, I think absolutely fascinating journey through, you know, your life and also through the the world of hotels. I've got one last question and it should be really tricky. I don't know whether, (laughs) no, I'm not trying to be tricky. Um, If you only had one project left to do, I ask lots of people this one, one project and you've got to hang your hat up. You can't design another thing. This is it. Um, What would you choose? And I'm going to narrow it down. What would you choose for Brooklyn as your one last project? Because that's really in your community. Oh, yeah. 
And you mean like an existing hotel or? I don't know. I don't know. Anything. Oh, my goodness. And the tricky part is, is it's in your own neighborhood. So you do have to live with it. Or you have to move neighborhoods. (laughs) Hmm. I mean, I think the thing that I love about my house is that on that deck that I talked about, I have a 360 view of all of Brooklyn. So I can see the uh, Statue of Liberty, the Brooklyn Bridge, the Manhattan Bridge, and all of Manhattan. Like, it's really great. So I think... Um, to be able to design a hotel in Brooklyn that accommodates that view and, uh, you know, our design ethos, I think would be pretty spectacular. And I'd love to do like a small intimate hotel, you know, not a, not a huge. Yeah. Not, not, not a 200 room hotel. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, I really love, uh, the promenade in Brooklyn Heights. I think it's really spectacular. I mean, Brooklyn Heights, I think is a little snooty, quite frankly, but, um, that, <laughs> but you're a local, <laughs> but I'm a, is really amazing. And so to have a special place that's looking out over the promenade and then back to Manhattan, I think would be really phenomenal. That's a cool answer. That's a really cool answer. It'd be nice to do that kind of hotel and, uh, also taken something that, you know, as a local, most people probably don't get up high enough to see all that very easily. Right, um, exactly. And, and, and so you're opening up a part of that local landscape or local, um, only locals would know kind of space to everybody else. I think that's fabulous. Sarah, what a fabulous chat. Really enjoyed it. Um, Me too. It was fun <laughs> to peel back how it all works. Yeah. Where, where are you based now? I'm in the Sunshine Coast of Australia, which is uh, Queensland. And oh. um, I don't know whether you've ever been, but Brisbane's my lo- biggest city, uh, which is about an hour or so south of me. And then we've got, most people will have heard of the Gold Coast, which is about another hour south of that. Um, and then north of me is only about 40 minutes, 30, 40 minutes is a place called Noosa, which people may have heard of there's sort of a couple of beach towns on the east coast of um the, this part of australia one's byron bay uh which is often heard of and the other is uh, noosa heads which is often heard of as well so it's uh the town i live in not very big um very desirable on a very fast grow um we've got a new town center being built as well as we've got uh the Olympics are coming to this region in 11 years time, I think. Yeah. Right. And so we've got a lot of development happening. Um, As I say, it's growing very fast and that's somewhat, you know, disturbing as well as fabulous. There's not a lot of history. Um, There is history, but there's not a lot of um, history within buildings. You know, there's probably not too much that's beyond the forties and fifties. Um, so it's not like it's got any of that big longevity. It's like right. living in Florida for the weather. Um, uh. <laughs> yeah, 330 sunshine days a year. Um, so it's, yeah, it, it's nice like that. And it used to be sort of a retirement village. The town I live in is called Budrum. 
and that used to be like the average age of Budrum used to be 40. So that tells you how old the rest of them were because it's got a lot of schools as well. So, oh yeah. And it's still a bit like that. It's still, it's a, it's a, yeah, a quiet little town. Quiet little nice. town. Yes, it's somewhere that uh, is very nice to live in, a little bit bland, but easy to escape from. Right. Good. <laughs> well, it was really nice to meet you and I enjoyed our talk a lot. Yeah, me too, Sarah. It was really fabulous. And um, we'll post this up. Uh, we'll be in touch and all your socials and stuff will go there with it. And yeah, we'll let you know when we're going to put it up on the uh, on Talk Design on our okay. site. And it will go out on Apple and, you know, Google and everywhere right. as it goes. Cool. All right. Well, thank you for having me. Uh, my pleasure. Have a fabulous night and take care. You too. Bye. Cheers, hon. Bye. Richard's Magic Arrows is brought to you by the Architect Marketing Institute. Clean, simple, sugar-free magic arrows that hit the mark for fast results. Let's fire a magic arrow into this week's problem. Now, I know feed pressure is one of the biggest things facing designers. It doesn't matter what level you're at. There is no one golden bullet for it. Uh, if it was, it was probably select the right type of clients. But if you're in a situation where you're being pressured on fees, I'm going to give you a way of dealing with it. And it's by asking, say, three questions. And this is called takeaway selling. So this is where you kind of offer something up and then you take it away and see if they follow you. It's almost like imagine if you had some hot ch chocolate cookies and you had a plate full of them. You put them in front of them, someone and then they went to reach out and then you, you pulled it away and you see if they get up and follow you. It's that type of thing. So this is called takeaway selling. So the first question you ask, you say, well, why don't you just leave the situation as it is? Why, why make the change? That's an unusual thing for a designer to say. Well, why not just leave it as it is? And see how they answer. And then you might say, well, why did you want to speak to me? Why did you not get someone else? And see if they follow you. See if they answer properly. And the third question would be, well, why not do it later? Now, by asking these negative questions, you're going to get a lot more information out of someone than by trying to convince them to do it. Because by pulling the plate of hot cookies away, they're either going to react or they're not. And if they do react and give you answers and explain why it's important, then what they're doing is telling you how important something is. Now, while these magic arrows are great for fast results, when you're ready to run better quality projects from clients who value great design and are prepared to pay great fees, I've got a special training just for you. Go to archmarketing.org forward slash talk design. Take your magic arrow and fire at will. Richard's Magic Arrows is brought to you by the Architect Marketing 